Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaurna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Monday the 1st of May, 2023. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Can you tell us, mate, what's up in the sky for the month of May? The month of May is not quite as exciting as last month's was, but there's still lots of good things happening. The planetary action is moving to the morning sky, so you have to be a bit of a, a early riser to get some of the best things happening. Venus and Mars are still prominent in the evening sky, though, and Mercury returns to the morning twilight this month. So late May and early June will be excellent time for visiting Mercury in the morning skies. Jupiter finally makes it into the morning skies, too, although it'll be quite low until late in the month. We also have the Edo Aquarius meteor shower and a penumbral eclipse of the moon. Not as exciting as our partial solar eclipse, but still it can be interesting. So as usual, I'll start off with the place of the moon. May 6 is the full moon, and we have that number of eclipse in the early morning hours of May 6. May 12 is the last quarter, which is ideal for stargazing in the evening. And then May 20 is the new moon, which of course is also ideal for stargazing. May the 28th is the first quarter moon, and that's also an apogee or mini first quarter moon. So if you are taking snaps of the first quarter moon, take it now and then compare it with the perigee first quarter moon later on in the month. Well, it's later on in the year, sorry, not the month. The moon's at perigee on May 11th, and as I said, the apogee's on May 28th. So first, let's start off with the evening sky. Venus is getting brighter and also climbing higher. Again, because the angle of the ecliptic is uh, fairly uh, low to the horizon, it's not really very high, but it's now very prominent as uh, visible astronomical twilight 
when the sky is fully dark. And I remind you, astronomical twilight is an hour and a half after sunset. So Venus has a couple of close encounters this month, moving from Taurus into Gemini. So from the 9th to the 10th, Venus is close to the open cluster M35, mirroring Mars last month. And this is an excellent sight in binoculars, although uh, unlike Mars, Venus is so bright it may drown out um, some of the dimmer members of M35, but it'll still be an excellent sight in binoculars. And because Venus is getting higher in the sky, it's darker, so you'll get a better chance to see some of the pretties in M35. Yep. So on the 23rd, Venus is just three degrees from the crescent moon, as it was last month, so it'll make a nice binocular sight. And on the 30th, Venus is only 20 arc minutes from the double star Capitamorium. So this will look nice in telescopes. Bit okay in binoculars. But again, because Venus is relatively low to the right, and getting your telescope down to that angle may be a little bit hard, but it will, of course, be reasonably okay in, in binoculars. Although the, the double star aspect of Capitamorium won't be really as apparent. And of course, Venus has been going through its phase changes. Uh, Venus has gone from gibbous to very obviously a half moon shape. So it's really quite interesting in, in uh, the telescope now. And as it, uh, the, the months move on, we'll see, see Venus be going from half moon to crescent. But at the moment, it's a very nice half moon shape. Nice. Mars is no longer spectacular. It's well past opposition. It's still easily visible, though. It's relatively bright. It's not worthwhile in a telescope unless you've got a serious large telescope. Mars is leaving Gemini and entering Cancer. And on the 31st, Mars is on the outskirts of the Beehive Cluster, and which will be very nice in binoculars. In June, Mars, in fact, crosses in front of the face of the Beehive Cluster, which will be a very interesting binocular and telescopic view. But just for now, you can see it towards at the end of the, of the month. You can be getting closer and closer to the beehive. If you're in a dark sky site, you'll be able to see the beehive cluster with the unaided eye. And it's very definitely obvious in binoculars. And of course, Mars has a, an encounter with the moon. Not as spectacular as last month's, but on the 24th, Mars, Venus and the waxing moon form a triangle, which will be very pleasant to see in the evening sky and again it'll be uh, you can watch these as venus and mars appear out of the twilight and they'll be visible until quite late in the evening good oh so that's the evening sky let's have a look at the morning sky yep. so mercury's entered the morning sky but uh, is best seen from the from mid-month on the 18th mercury and the thin crescent moon and jupiter form a triangle and on the 29th, Mercury is at its furthest from the sun and obviously at the very highest and will be easy to see above the eastern horizon an hour before sunrise below Jupiter. Saturn is still climbing higher in the morning skies and is readily visible an hour and a half before sunrise. It's one of the obvious uh, brighter objects above the horizon at the moment. Between the two bright stars, Altair is the constellation of Aquila the Eagle. And the alpha star of constellation of the Sinus the southern fish, which is 
Altair is the, the white star to the north, Pomelux the uh, yellowish star to the south, and Golden Saturn forms a triangle between them. Uh, and so Saturn is now a decent telescopic object. And it's now at that position between Earth and the Sun where you've got the maximum amount of shadow being cast on uh, Saturn's rings. And the actual best time is the 28th, where that will be the, the maximum possible amount of shadow, which will give it an interesting 3D appearance. Saturn is now uh, joined by uh, Jupiter uh, as well. So we've got the two outer planets now visible. It's going to be climbing uh, higher in the morning twilight. It'll still be uh, difficult to see until around about mid-month, like Mercury. On the 18th, Mercury, the thin crescent moon, and Jupiter form a nice triangle in the morning twilight. It might be a bit hard to see from, from a half an hour before sunrise, but if you've got a low eastern horizon uh, without very much clutter, you should be able to see it until about at least an hour. Uh, before, uh, from the least now before sunrise. Excellent. So, for the stars, we've got the start of the galaxy season. The heart of the Milky Way is beginning to rise. Scorpius is now uh, very visible. At a 10 pm local time, the Southern Cross is at its highest. And so, the magnificent globular cluster Omega Centauri is also at its highest. Tragically, the next uh, best globular cluster in my estimation, 4672 Canada, is also at its lowest above the horizon. We've also got the false, false cross of Southern Pleiades and a right of clusters around Eta Carina uh, being prominent. So very good southern sky hunting. And I'll go into that a bit in a bit more detail in uh, the in the Jew uh, uh, Sky Watch because we want to now concentrate on two things, the penumbral lunar eclipse and the meteors. Now, as I said in the morning of May the 6th, there's a penumbral uh, eclipse of the moon. This, unlike a partial eclipse of the moon, is not as exciting because it's, it's, it's the moon going through Earth's outer shadow. This is a reasonably deep uh, entry into Earth's outer shadow. And so the darkening of the moon's pole will be evident to the key eye. But unfortunately, it's not going to be dark enough to improve the rates of the Eater of Ferris, which I'll talk about uh, shortly. Uh, you have to get up uh, quite early to see this. The eclipse begins about uh, 1 a.m. Uh, from the eastern states, midnight from the uh, central states, and uh, around about 11.30 from, the, from Western Australia. Uh, Mid-eclipse is about 3 a.m. in the eastern states, about 3.30 a.m. in the eastern states, about uh, 3 a.m. in the central states, and about 1.30 in the western states. Yeah, and why this matters is because the peak of the Eater Aquarius is about the sixth. So if you're up and out uh, looking for the Eater Aquarius, it's worthwhile having a look for the penumbral eclipse as well. The only drawback, of course, is that the penumbral eclipse isn't darkening the moon very much. So if you are looking intently at the moon, it will ruin your eyesight for looking for the Eater Aquarius. And the eclipse finishes about 5.30 in the eastern states, 5 o'clock in the central states, and 3.30 in the western states. Okay. So next we come to the meteors, the Eta Aquarian Meteor Shower. This is a reliable southern hemisphere shower. It's produced by debris from Halley's Comet. And it's going to peak on the 5th to the 6th this year. 
Unfortunately, as you've just heard, this is, where, this is when the moon is full and the rates are going to be greatly reduced. You may have seen some newspaper articles or online articles suggesting that uh, there will be a uh, outburst this year with possibly twice the number of meteors we uh, normally see. But with the moon bright, we're probably not going to be seeing uh, very much. Yep. Uh, and you will see some, some rather breathless statements. We're going to see 40 meteors uh, per hour. That's a theoretical uh, hourly rate, which is what would happen if the meteors were coming from a radiant that was at precisely at the zenith and there was no moonlight to get in the way because there, because in Australia the uh, Gemini uh, radiant is not very high above the horizon and uh, the moon is very definitely in the way. We're going to be seeing uh, a lot less. And so, uh, for example, on the morning of the 5th, we could expect to see something like 10 meteors an hour from Adelaide 11 meteors an hour as you go further north. And Darwin has the best rates of about 12 meteors an hour based on the, the extinction of light from the moon. And so that, that's not too bad. If you want to get up and look at the number of eclipses and then uh, then uh, shield your eyes, uh, find a, once you've looked at the number of eclipses, find a way to block out the, the uh, moon's light and then start looking at uh, the uh, meteors. You've got a reasonable chance of seeing some meteors. The uh, Eta Aquarius are very fast meteors, zipping across the sky very rapidly, but you don't tend to see very many fireballs, which are really spectacular. But anyway, it's 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 not too bad. So you're probably better off seeing it on the morning of the fifth. Uh, of course, the number of eclipses on the morning of the sixth. Choose your time wisely. Uh, of course, the morning of the sixth is the is the Saturday. So if you want to, don't want to be up about on a, on a, a working day, the sixth is the best time to do this. The seventh is dramatically, uh, it's not dramatically, but it's definitely worse than the morning of the sixth. So that's the sky for May. Uh, some nice things happening, potentially some nice meteors and a, a nice but uh, not, not fantastically exciting number of eclipse of the moon. Excellent. Now, what about your tangent, Ian? You may be noticing uh, that uh, Orion, which has been our companion for the summer months, is now uh, very close to the western horizon and sinking. But if you look at the the top northmost star, the red, a uh, reasonably bright red, that's Betelgeuse, yep. and Betelgeuse is brightening. So you may remember back in two thousand nineteen, there was a lot of excitement as Betelgeuse dimmed historic lows, and people were widely speculating it's going to go supernova. Well, as since that dimming, Betelgeuse has been slowly getting brighter. And at the moment, it's been the brightest for quite some time. So it's currently at 156% of its nominal brightness. Uh, and why is it so bright, you may ask? Well, we don't really know. Uh, Betelgeuse is a variable star. Uh, it's a red giant, and it varies with a complex 
variation. It's got a dominant period of 420 days, superimposed on a long period variability of five to six years and a shorter term variability around about 180 days. Now, these fluctuations are obviously long term, but they were recorded in the indigenous stories of the Kakatha people uh, of the Western Desert. In the story of Yaruna, their name for Orion the Hunter, and uh, Kamaguda, the name for the Hades. And Kamaguda is the sister who predicts the uh, layer, the uh, what we know as the seven sisters of Hades, from the advances of the hunter Yaruna. Now, Yaruna wields a fire club. And this fire club, of course, is being used, and that uh, alternative flares up and fires down, uh, dies. Now, I've, I've told the story in detail in a previous podcast where the uh, long-term battle between Yuruna and Kamaguda uh, with flaming clubs and uh, fire magic in, uh, in uh, Kamaguda's feet. We'll pass over that for the moment. Yep. So... Uh, when in 2019, what happened was that Beetlejuice dredged up a lot of uh, dust from its interior. Now, uh, nuclear synthesis goes on in stars, and a lot of the lighter elements, things that we think of is as uh, as uh, not metals like carbon. Whereas uh, to an astrophysicist, everything from carbon up is a metal. So these things are synthesized in the, in the interiors of in the, in the outer parts of the red giant. And then in this case, what appeared to be a, a cooler spot on the surface developed, and a lot of the, these gases containing, uh, containing the, uh, the synthesized materials were able to escape the uh, upper atmosphere of Betelgeuse where they cooled and condensed into dust and formed this massive dust cloud which obscured uh, Betelgeuse's uh, surface yep. and causing this massive dimming. Now, the periodic uh, brightening and dimming of uh, Betelgeuse is due to the, the pulsating of the star. The star shrinks and becomes dimmer and expands and becomes brighter. And we thought that when it was dipping to historic lows, possibly what was happening was it was shrinking down into a pre-supernova state, but no, it was just spreading dust everywhere. What's happening with the star now expanding, becoming brighter? I've been uh, looking at the most recent data to see what exactly is happening, uh, but it's not. It's, we're still not clear why Betelgeuse is brightening at the moment. But be that as it may, uh, of course, if this is all happening as uh, uh, we're about to lose Betelgeuse and Orion from our site. But if you want to try looking at um, uh, Betelgeuse itself and uh, working out how bright it is, you can do this by comparing its magnitude to nearby stars. Unfortunately, most of the handy comparison stars are also low to the horizon, so the atmosphere is getting in the way. So Aldebaran is normally a fairly good comparison star, it's got a magnitude of 0.85 and it's also red, that's a good comparison. Bellatrix, the other shoulder star of Orion opposite uh, Betelgeuse is magnitude 
middle uh, star of Alliance Belt, Alan Amers managed to 1.7. These are all substantially dimmer than Beetlejuice at the moment. It's nominally around about a uh, magnitude of 0.6. Uh, it's a, a, a fair bit brighter than that now. So if you've got the, all your companion comparison stars are, are dimmer, it makes it a bit harder to work out what's going on. So you need a, a bright star to compare it to. So Procyon, Alpha Canis Majoris, that's the uh, the uh, little uh, uh, dog star, is magnitude 0.46, and that's uh, fairly close. Sirius itself is much brighter and not really uh, a, a good comparison unless Beetlejuice gets really, really bright. Better comparison stars are uh, Arcada, the magnitude 0.45, Alpha Crucis 0.6, and Beta Centauri magnitude 0.55. By comparing those, you might get a better feel for what Beetlejuice's magnitude is. Again, the problem with Alpha Crucis, Beta Centauri, and Arcadar is they're quite a distance away and quite above, a fair bit above the horizon. So Beetlejuice, although it's 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 bright, it's getting closer to the horizon, it's getting, getting the atmosphere interfering. So you, you may be out in your um, in your uh, estimations. So if, if you want to uh, uh, start observing uh, Beetlejuice to see how it's varying, a good place to get additional information is the AADSO website, which stands for the Astronomical Association of Variable Star Observers. And that gives you a lot of detail on how to compare stars uh, so that you can work out how bright they are. Now, if you're starting to get excited about uh, uh, looking at uh, variable stars, another red giant variable you may be interested in is Mira, Omicron Sedai. That's the, the range of variation of Beetlejuice is relatively small. But Mira goes from uh, being uh, just about unable eye visible to being about as bright as Delta Crucis over a period of 320 days. That's a long time. It gets kind of boring watching it. Uh, unfortunately, Mira is too close to the sun to look at until about mid-June, but it can be seen in the morning sky, uh, and it will be beginning to uh, brighten round about then. So that'll be a, a good time to start. Now, if you're, you're keen to get up before sunrise, and if you're going to do so for uh, the uh, Eid Aquarius, uh, Eta Aquila, the second star to the right of Bright Health, there is a variable in a period of about 7.18 days. And it's a lot less waiting time, but you do have to get up uh, early morning to see that. It varies by a full magnitude, and you need to get up about uh, at least once uh, once a day or uh, once a morning for an entire week to be able to see Eta Aquila get, go bright and then dark. Uh, but you know, uh, if you do, if you are up uh, and you are uh, watching for meteors, you might have an extra surprise in seeing a dimming of either Aquila. And, and you never know; you might get a taste for a ver uh, observing variables for surprise. I've uh, mentioned a, a couple of uh, ones that are easily visible in the southern sky with the unaided eye, but there's a lot more. If you've got binoculars, there's a lot more that you can see. And uh, if you're if you're interested, the AABSO website will give you uh, some good uh, examples to start observing. So, 
whether there's a, a bright planet or a uh, eclipse in the sky or not, there's always something to see out there in the sky if you look up. Thank you very much, Anne. Lots of good things to see in the month of May. And talking about Betelgeuse and variable stars, it reminds me we did an episode here, episode 120, uh, a couple of years ago about Dr. Cecilia Payne, who was born in 1900, and she was one of the pioneers of variable star astronomy. So anyone who's interested in finding out how variable star astronomy started, you can find it on our episode 120, Dr. Cecilia Payne Gopochkin, The Certainty of the Sun and the Variability of Stars. And there's some of us here, Ian, who are very interested in either Betelgeuse going bang or Eta Carina going bang. Um, I've got my fingers crossed for both of them. <laughs> well, they would be very, very exciting if they uh, if they do. There's a nova in Sagittarius at the moment. It's not very bright. It's only magnitude 7. and it, well, it's, it's dim to magnitude 8 now. And you can follow it with binoculars. But um, there's... We've had some nice little nova uh, recently, some of which have got uh, bright, be able to see, be seen with the unaided eye. So uh, if you're scanning the sky for all sorts of things, it might be worthwhile trying to memorise the constellations. So if you see a star where there wasn't one previously, and it's not a Starlink satellite, um, then you may have caught a nova, and that, that, that can be very exciting indeed. Fantastic, Ian. Transients, wonderful things. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Another wonderful month to look forward to. Indeed, Brendan, indeed. It will be a very nice month indeed. Okay. Good night, mate. Thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Thank you too, and uh, you have a great month. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. So in two weeks' time on Astrophys, you'll find out all the very latest in X-ray astronomy and high-energy astrophysics from Dr. Rodolfo Montez from the Harvard-Smithsonian Chandra X-ray Observatory. Till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.